Welcome to episode 6 of The Reading Cure. In this episode, we'll be discussing the play The Birthday Party by Harold Pinter. Welcome to The Reading Cure, your fortnightly dose of bibliotherapy. My name is Dr Stephen Davis and my co-host is Dr Alexander Fox. Well, let me start with a quote from our featured playwright for this week. Pinter once said, I think we communicate only too well in our silence and what is unsaid and that what takes place is a continual evasion, desperate rearguard attempts to keep ourselves to ourselves. Communication is too alarming. To enter into someone else's life is too frightening. To disclose to others the poverty within us is too fearsome a possibility. So these words were uttered by one of the most influential British playwrights of the 20th century, whose many works included The Caretaker, The Homecoming, The Dumb Waiter, The Betrayal, and The Birthday Party. And this latter comedy of menace, as it has been described, will be our focus for this week. Now, Pinter has, of course, received huge numbers of literary honours in his lifetime, including the Nobel Prize in 2005. He was a highly accomplished actor and director as well, involved in many iconic productions of his own plays and those of contemporaries like Samuel Beckett and Simon Gray. Pinter also has the rare accolade of having spawned his own adjective, the Pinteresque, which references the highly distinctive dialogue in his plays in which pauses and digressions mimic our tendency to use speech as much to hide as to reveal ourselves. Now, in the birthday party, we come upon a reclusive and highly depressive pianist named Stanley Weber, who appears to be holed up in a dilapidated seaside boarding house. The house is run by Meg and Petey, an older couple who have taken Stanley in, and in the case of Meg, formed a very intense fondness for him. Stanley's somewhat suffocating but seemingly safe world is then thrown into disarray by the arrival of two sinister new guests to the boarding house, Goldberg and McCann. The former enthusiastically embraces Meg's wish to have a birthday party for Stanley, despite Stanley protesting that it is in fact not his birthday. Yet Goldberg and McCann's true mission is to bring Stanley back to their mysterious organisation, and the party is used to instigate the beginning of a brutal psychological reconditioning of Stanley. Now, we are specifically recommending the 1968 film production of this play, which starred Robert Shaw, Patrick McGee and Dandy Nichols, and was uh, directed by William Friedkin. The production is free to watch on YouTube, and a link to it is in the show notes for this episode. So I think the first issue we're, we're going to speak about tonight, Alec, was the, the character of Stanley Weber. Um, so I was curious to hear, you know, from a psychological point of view, what, what do you think we should make of Stanley? Well, when we see the characters of uh, Stanley Weber, there's certain things that stand out, you know, how reclusive, antisocial he is, how selfish he is, almost to the point of being a sponger with, uh, you know, Megan Petey and the immature behaviour that, that yeah. he demonstrates over the course of the play. But I think to really understand him psychologically, we've got to look at the overarching theme of the birthday party. And, and the way I would see it is it's a sort of Pinterest coming-of-age tale okay. <laughs> in, in the sense of um, Stanley at the end has reached a point of maturity as society defines it. And it's this coming of age, in a sense. So, you know, while that isn't ultimately maturity, as uh, Pinter or few people would define it, it's how society sees it. And so I think viewing Stanley through that lens of immaturity helps us to understand him, you know, much better, really. Uh, yes. As, as this, almost this boy. I know he gets treated by Meg as a boy, but he is his psychological age in many ways is like a child. So I think that's crucial for understanding him. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to see it, actually, as a kind of almost slightly dystopian coming-of-age tale. I yes. mean, it's, certainly to me, 
um, you know, it's, it's evident when you watch the play that you, you see Stanley um, as this very much, you know, man in a lethargic, depressive, kind of despondence, lacking self-respect. And, and also, uh, you, you described the maturity factor, you know, there's this, you see in the early scene with Meg, this kind of grandiosity and entitlement coming out, mm. maybe a lack of gratitude as well towards her, you know. Um, there, there was one quote I quite liked where he, where I can't remember, Meg has, has, has riled him in some way and he says, tell me, Mrs. Bowles, when you address yourself to me, do you ever ask yourself who exactly you're talking to? He has this kind of sense of his own importance, but there's a kind of there is a kind of childlike quality to that as well, because it's not really quite clear what that's based on, given his, his circumstances. Um, well, so, yes, yeah. I mean, he can't he can't inhabit that role like Goldberg. He can't be a man of society uh, in the way that Goldberg can be. But the fact that he defines respect in that way shows how um, how open or how vulnerable he is to you know, Goldberg's idea of uh, a normal, healthy human being in society, if, if you see what I mean. So yeah. I, think when he, I think when he tries to command Meg's respect, he's, get, he's showing that he's actually, you know, very vulnerable to how society would define an adult human being. It's Goldberg's definition, and I think that's why they can insinuate themselves into his psyche later on in the play. Well, indeed. I mean, it struck me that Stanley is a man who's just in this this state of fear. It's like, I mean, initially you think when as soon as Meg mentions these two gentlemen, you know, that are coming to the mm. boarding house, there's this, you, you might think initially paranoid reaction, you know, this extreme suspicion. But then, of course, it turns out to actually be quite well founded because, you know, yeah. they are there to target him. And it's like he almost suspected this was coming you know so it's like there's a guilt and a fear that he's carrying around with him that this this could happen at any moment and, and of course it does um do well you yes that pervasive fear is a key characteristic of stanley <clears throat> if we were yeah. to understand his psychology really we would have to say that this man wants to see himself as exceptional as special so when he talks about his artistic abilities which is, was as a concert pianist allegedly i have to say allegedly for well indeed reasons yes. that we would probably discuss later but he, he talks about his unique touch so this is a man that wants to see himself as distinct from society unfortunately irrespective of whatever his abilities was as a pianist, he doesn't have the psychological robustness and stability to, uh, you know, affirm, you know, his distinctness. In other words, he's actually somebody very dependent. As, uh, I know he has contempt towards Meg. That's largely to do with the fact that he still actually needs that motherly solicitude uh, because, yeah. he, you know, he cannot be... He can't stand on his own two feet. He cannot be distinct and independent. While he wants to be a rebel, uh, he doesn't really have much psychological freedom. I mean, as somebody, Karen Horn, as, as Karen Horney might put it, he has a, a freedom from, to some extent, but not a freedom to. So, you know, to, freedom to do certain things. He can't really actualize much of his individuality because he's too dependent. And also he is too um, too much at the mercy of uh, societal norms, which, which is, you know, you can see there'll be a very strong superego, as Freud is, a very strong inner critic. So he has this very weak, dependent self, which is also matched, unsurprisingly, by this very strong, punitive superego, which then takes human form uh, in the form of uh, Goldberg and Khan. Yeah, very interesting points there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. But it's quite evident, for example, when Goldberg and McCann arrive, you know, Stanley, he's he's extremely threatened by them, yeah. you know, and he has this attempt briefly to try to stand up to them. He, he says something like, you're nothing more than a dirty joke. Mm. And he, and he mm. tries to throw them out of the house, but mm. they seem unconvinced by it. And, and he himself, you know, this, this kind of facade crumbles quite quickly, you know, and there isn't any sense he's got a kind of strong identity that he could challenge, you know, maybe the, 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 the norms in these individuals that he really genuinely does have contempt for, you know, mm. what he thinks are, are the undesirable aspects of being, you know, conventional that he, he 
wants to distinguish himself from. Yes. He, he maybe sees it and he maybe dislikes it, but there isn't a su- substantial self there to kind of put forward in, in contrast to this and, and feel secure as he does that. Um, I, th- I well, think no. you're right about the no. yeah the the, the, the punitive superego there that um, is 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 already torturing him before they even arrive. Yes, I, well, I mean when when he when he details to Meg about this alleged concert that he'd given and afterwards after the concert he said that the 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 critics carved him up which is a very <clears throat> telling phrase about you know if i could almost put it in workplace speak you know how he receives feedback shall we say <laughs> that, yeah. that uh, you know it, it it carves them up it's it, it's 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 uh, annihilating and of course we see how much it annihilates later on because he's there he then becomes this faceless generic servant of society in his suit um so he has a very yeah he has a very punitive uh inner critic and so Stanley, quite a lot of Stanley agrees with Goldberg and McCann, but there is also this rebellious part that could see them as this dirty joke and wants to throw them, throw them out. But he, you know, it's it's not overall the stronger part of his psyche. And it's interesting actually when sometimes when they're they are interrogating Stanley in those very kind of powerful scenes, um, sometimes they get it a little bit wrong. You know, like they they suggest that he um he's driving, I think they say driving that old lady off her conk. Mm. That's one of the quotes where, mm. you know, they're suggesting that he's 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 you know driving Megan mm. Pete around the bend, which isn't actually mm. quite true. No. And then they say, Where's your wife? And then but then they say, Why did you never get married? So there's a bit of a sense that they're kind of using a standard script here on Stanley. Stanley, without having really delved too too deeply into his own actual circumstances, I think you know. So yeah, I mean, it, 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 that interrogation scene is, yeah, I mean, these are good points. It, it, it sounds like a standard script. It, also, what's getting thrown at him, some of it would not hit the mark if Stanley yes. was looking at it in a realistic way. But I think one of the reasons why um, these allegations are so absurd is is uh, to highlight the impact on Stanley. So they don't need to actually be accurate to still hit the mark because this this man still feels profoundly guilty. He feels yes. guilty anyway. So whatever, even if they charge him with something from, what was it, 1608, I can't remember, something yeah. very much back, <laughs> far back in the past, it's still, it's still carving him up. Um, also, there is that thing that... You know, when they say, why are you drive?" I think it was Goldberg, why are you driving that old lady off her cog? That, yeah, that isn't true, but it's where Goldberg and McCann start to blend with, you know, Stanley's own superego, if, if you see what I mean. Yeah. And, and so it's almost like that could have been an accusation he made to himself, you know, from his own inner critic. It's, because it, there's times where it blurs between them being actual people and just being externalizations of that superego. I, I think that's a good point. I mean, there, there's also the the recurrence of, I think the phrase, you're a washout. You know, I think mm. it's initially mm. used by Lulu, who's kind of minor yeah. character in it, but then it's echoed again by Goldberg later on. So it is a bit like yeah. these accusations in the air. Yes. It's like, as you say, yes, as if Stanley's projected those outwards uh, and then they really do resonate with him because it's what he, he thinks of himself on some level, although he doesn't, you know, on another really quite want to admit it. Um, yes, yeah. And I so, think also that... that if yep. we see it in terms of that Lacanian idea of the big other, that what they're articulating, you know, and being a washout and not being responsible is how the other societies, the big other, would view someone like him at the time. So, yeah, as you say, Lulu calls him a washout and then so does Goldberg. It lends a certain universality at that time to those criticisms. Because... You know, certainly at that time, the way he's going about, you know, falling out of bed at whatever 10 a.m. and, you know, in such a dilapidated state that, yeah, you could see why many people at that time would unfortunately call him, um, you know, a washout. Yeah. Really. Indeed. Um, And I I thought it was interesting that, you know, 
simultaneously to this, you know, maybe using Goldberg and McCann in that way to represent the kind of punitive forces. He also, um, Pinter, you know, kind of satirises the, these these characters too, because, I mean, Goldberg obviously is this kind of highly cliched man of the mm. world, but he's cliched to the point of it, of silliness. You know, I mean, there's, mm. there's one line I liked where he said, um, don't talk to me about school, topping all subjects. I've never lost a tooth, not since the day I was born. You know, yeah. like, you know, ludicrous statements about himself that show you know how much he's just vacuous really and and, and absurd yeah. but in this role you know so there is a kind of you know a kind of complexity to the character there well, as well there in is. a sense you know there is but well, i mean some some critics have written about the idea of pinter being influenced by comedy double acts you know laurel and hardy kind of thing and, okay and, yeah. and so i mean it's not as though when you see goldberg and mccann that you would instantly think about laurel and hardy but what what but what you do see is a comedic double act yeah. really there and goldberg is a bit like ollie in that he thinks he's a lot smarter than Go- uh, mccann but in actual fact he might be more vacuous and have more problems and so th- there is that kind of pairing up for comedic effect they are like they are a comedy double act albeit in a sinister way and the these initial plays were called comedies of menace so there was yeah. a recognition that there was a comedic um you know, aspect. Now, regarding Goldberg, um, I mean, you and I know that that, that one of Pinter's uh, uh, obsessions and focuses is, is to, you know, expose insubstantiality or show the more sordid parts of her psyche. So he's very much a moralist in that way. It's no surprise that he wants to really skewer the typical... Uh, society man, you know the the the, the businessman that, that has read Norman Vincent Peale's book on positive thinking and just thinks <laughs> he's got to project himself and propagandize himself, and then he will be a person of substance. I mean, yes. Pinter being a moralist and a very um, unsparing one uh, really skewers that in this play. He shows how. I mean, part of the, in, in my view, part of the brilliance of the play is that it's quite obvious to see the insubstantiality of uh, Stanley in many ways. This this man is not really grown out of childhood and mm-hmm. he has a rather pathetic and um, you know, psyche in many yeah. ways. There's a poverty there. But part of the brilliance of this play is that he shows even the guy that would be lauded Goldberg would give, you know, speeches for money is is just as insubstantial and there's just as much poverty there. That's part of the brilliance of the play, I think. In my I opinion. think so. And and then McCann's interesting because, I mean, obviously he's a very, like Stanley, actually quite a depressive character. Mm. And it's, the, you know, I, I, I was thinking that there's a kind of sense with him that although he has in some ways conformed in a way that Stanley has resisted, um, there's not really any sense this has got him anywhere. You know, I mean, he's very... No. He's kind of respectful, but also fearful of Goldberg. He's followed the rules, but you know his kind of peculiar habit of sitting tearing these newspaper strips. Mm. You know, it's a bit like you know, which again is quite absurd and funny, but also menacing. Um, you know, it's like that he's still got some core of of oddness, idiosyncrasy that mm. hasn't been quite quashed, but it has so few outlets now that just this kind of antisocial activity has become a kind of obsessive one for him. Yeah. So he he's well, an interesting one, I think, as a kind of sense of this continuum as you suggested from you know from from Goldberg who is the supposed success but but arguably in a worse state than than the immature Stanley um and and maybe actually of course you know that that brilliant and very strange scene where Goldberg loses his words and then mm. asks McCann to blow in his mouth yeah. you know this this kind of sense he's run out of air which is what his words are you know and he, yes. he needs a McCann who's maybe a little bit more human than he, than he is perhaps still to just help him at that at that moment of crisis um, yes well I think these are very good points I mean we'll talk later on about that scene uh, where he asked to blow it, uh, McCann to blow into his mouth because I think yeah. that's central to understand the play as well but but yeah I think McCann is if we were going to be blunt about it he's a dog's buddy and because he's a dog's buddy he has a functional place in society but it's not a place that requires him to have a polished self-image so he you know while he belongs to society more than 
than Stanley does. Um, he's not required to iron out the creases in his psyche in the way that Goldberg has. So he has still these idiosyncrasies, shall we call them, regarding newspaper clippings <laughs> and things yep. like that. But he, he gets away with that because at his level, shall we say, in that hierarchy, you know, as long as he does his job and he does do it in that play, uh, he, you know, he, he is spared the 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 sort of uh, interrogation and persecution that Stanley's put through, but nor does he nor is he expected to come across in a very polished kind of way like Goldberg. It's interesting as well, obviously the other kind of main characters, Meg and Petey in the play, mm. you know, they're obviously older and they have their boarding house. So, you know, they obviously don't, there's not a sense of them having the same kind of pressure to conform within this hierarchy. Obviously, they're a little bit kind of out with it. Um, I thought it was interesting that obviously they they have this fondness for Stanley, you know, mm. despite his, you know, being, a, he can't, I can't imagine he'd be a great house guest to have, you know, he, he is obviously a very difficult man, but there is this real affection Meg has for him. And then we later see a kind of protectiveness from PT, mm. um, none of which actually saves him, you know, from the fate of, of Goldberg and McCann. I was one, so I was wondering, do you, do you think then the play has, would you say it's got quite a cynical view of the possibility of kind of having, meaningful even loving connections within the kind of world that Pinter's depicting here you know the, this sort of very hierarchical oppressive society do you think it's quite a, a dark view really on the po- prospect of kind of true connection there uh yeah I mean I, I'll get on to in a minute about Megan Petey specifically but if we're talking about it more generally um the yeah. therapists among us that are listening would could understand what I would mean when they, they say that the world that, that Pinter's depicting in this play is like a Rogerian nightmare. Yeah. And, you know, what? just to explain to people that aren't therapists, what I mean by that is that Carl Rogers thought that for a, you know, a th- a th- for a therapeutic relationship to work, for it to, to help and even heal the client, it would have to have, uh, uh, you know, six core conditions but it's the three three that are the most important uh unconditional positive regard so he, he meant you know accepting the person as a person believing that they have worth believing in their potential he also spoke about a thing called congruence which would mean you know being real being honest about what you think and, and, and feel as much as you can be anyway being authentic and then the third thing was being empathic, which would mean making an attempt to understand the other person's point of view. Now, when we think about this Pinterest world, uh, we see very much conditional positive regard. And yep. if you don't follow the cer- certain norms, you're interrogated and you're persecuted. So it's the very opposite of uh, being accepted and felt, you know, being, being communicated you're worthwhile as a human being. In terms of congruence and authenticity, well, in Pinter's world, everybody's cagey. People don't want to open up because if you're too declarative about your vulnerability, it could be exploited by the other person in a power game. Yeah. So people are not authentic in that world either. And there's no real empathy because you're focused on your own self-image and trying to hide your vulnerabilities. So the last thing you keep you're interested in doing is understanding why someone is behaving the way that they are. It's much more dealt with in a judgmental, persecutory way. So you know because it lacks those qualities, it's not it's not going to have the mutuality, the the understanding that we would associate with love and connection. So that that's speaking about it in the most general terms there yeah yeah but i mean i think that that's a nice um uh, parallel to draw there you know i mean it really is it's a world starved of of, of what the, you know carol rogers believed we needed to thrive mm. you know nobody could possibly thrive in that environment it's it's just everything's wrong in terms of that yeah the, as you said all these different core kind of conditions so yeah i think that's that yeah i, I, I quite agree i think that's an interesting way to see it I think I think if we then look at Megan Petey specifically, we can then see why, in a very devilish way, 
uh, their care or even love for Stanley is not redemptive for him. Okay. Because what, what's devilish about it is that Meg is affectionate. She's demonstratively affectionate. She's doting. There is, because it's Pinter and he writes feel bad plays, there's also a kind of uh, creepy sexual element. Uh, Because because Stanley is not only her boy, the the child that she never had, but also her lover in a a sort of way, or (laughs) ideally she would want it that way. So it's very much fused, those two things. But if we see in terms of her doting this, she dotes after him, but she doesn't remotely understand understand him there's no there's no constructive critique of stanley she would she wouldn't know where to begin giving him advice to help him improve morally or any in any other way but she is almost blindly affectionate so you can see the 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 start limitations of that and then when we go to pity we see somebody that does understand Stanley, does care about him, but is markedly uncommunicative about these things, and he and and he um, he withdraws. So put the two together, and they're not really going to be much support for Stanley when he when he has the square off with Goldberg and McCann. No, that's true. I mean, that kind of dysfunctional pattern that you've just described, really, yeah. I mean, it's at the start of the play, obviously, we have the the, the, the PT, you know, with his newspaper where, you know, Meg is obviously asking him the same questions. Do you like, are the cornflakes nice? What's in the paper? Yes. And it's, again, it's always kind of curt answers. You know, there, as you say, this man who's very withdrawn and on the on and instead of going to Stanley's birthday party, of course, he goes out to his chess yes. club, you know, so he doesn't even take part there. And then, of course, Meg, you know, the excitement in her when she's got to get Stanley up in the morning, you know, she runs up the stairs and, the, you know, certainly in the, um, the production that we're recommending, you know, the Robert Shaw version, she kind of, it tickles him in his bed or you know mm. and that kind of thing so mm. <laughs> yeah i mean all of this is going on these kind of slightly odd mm. dynamics um, and and even there of course pete can't be blind to meg's you know romantic interests in stanley but seems rather indifferent you know there doesn't seem to be any real so you know he is quite a sort of solitary man actually although as you say you know he's not devoid of care actually for stanley so no um, no he under he understands stanley's situation but he does not have the the courage um, the backbone to intervene uh, or even just to convey any of that care directly to Stanley. He, he's very much standing back. And again, you know, the details in Pinter, uh, they, they add up so well. So, uh, you know, it's very telling that he goes off to play chess because it's sort of like how he sees the world. I think he thinks very strategically, Petey, and he knows that there are harmful forces out there too. Well, yes, and of course, um, you know, he tries to stand up to Stanley at the end. Yeah. Of course, Goldberg, you know, kind of glibly says, oh, why don't you come along as well, you know, yeah. to see Monty, which of course is a very sinister threat, you know, masked well, in glib, glib terms. And, and of course, Petey backs down at that point. You know, he yeah. doesn't, as you said. But I think, like, yeah, I think sorry, one yeah. of the, you know, part of the genius of the play there is that we can see, I mean, we can understand up to a point why he does back down, because it's a very ominous offer to say that. Oh, well, of course, We yeah. can see that. I, I mean, you, I'm not going to pretend that necessarily I would act differently there. I mean, you would hope that you could, but you couldn't say for sure. So we can't be too harsh on him, um, you know. No, 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 of course, but, yeah. but, but. But I think that what we see is that it is still a continuation of the life that he'd been leading because he'd been... One of the reasons why I think he could tolerate Stanley is that he himself has been leading quite a selfish life in that uh, in that household because, you know, he works around Meg. You know, the, the romance, the spark will have died long ago between them. And, and, he, and he sort of placates her, but... He doesn't really want to have much to do with her, so he's he's been leading this life where he's been stepping back from responsibilities for a long time. I think so. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the the way that you know the the, the ending where you know Stanley's gone, you know, and then of course Meg mm. comes down hungover from the party. You know, Petey, On the one hand, he's protective of her, isn't he? Because he he yeah. doesn't tell her about Stanley because you you know that's going to be a devastating mm. blow for her. But then on the other hand, he goes to kind of read in his paper. You know, there's not yeah. a sense that he's absolutely dis- discombobulated by what's just no. happened. No. There's still a 
you know, a sort of slipping into that role, you know, so he's keeping the information from her, but he's not, you know, he doesn't seem profoundly shaken really by, by. Well, things. yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. one of the, one of the themes that you get in Pinter uh, as a whole is that these, particularly these early plays is that ritual has this way of um, keeping anxiety at bay. You know, so his first play, The Room, is uh, part of it is this idea of a very sinister, ominous world to the main character outside a room. But making tea, making breakfast is a way of structuring your world and keeping your mind very much on concrete realities and not looking at the bigger picture. So I don't think it's a surprise that P.T. retreats into that after that uh, you know, very dramatic incident of Stanley getting kidnapped, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. And then, so in terms of, you know, we'd, we'd mentioned earlier that this strange scene where, where mm. you know, Goldberg has lost his words and McCann yeah. has to blow into his mouth, you know, is, you know, again, the point where mm. that kind of solitary path, um, you know, it runs aground, really, you know, because, you know, the, the Goldberg life philosophy, if you could call it that, is actually not really sustainable in terms of standing on his own two feet in that way. He actually does need McCann, even for a kind of affection, actually, you know, and, and there's there's elements of that between them, you know, as well as Goldberg being contemptuous towards McCann, there is still sometimes this 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 need for a degree of sol- solace from him. Um, what, so yes. what would be your take on that scene then, the, the blowing in the mouth? What do you think that well, represents? Well, I think that the... Um, well, there's a couple of things I would say about it. You know, first of all, one of the themes for Pinter in his plays, but also he referred to it in his writings, is that he was against what he called received ideas. And what he meant by that was, you know, beliefs, viewpoints that we just uncritically assimilate as we grow up and we just take to be the truth. So received ideas rather than reflective ideas. And so you can look at, you know, Goldberg's psyche is just a whole construction of received ideas. And my reading of that that moment is that Goldberg, it's not Goldberg, uh, Pinter is showing that Goldberg doesn't have a remotest idea of how to justify his worldview. He has just simply taken it in and lived it as though it was true, but he doesn't really have any justification for it. And as he was interrogating and attacking Stanley, he recognised that, you know, he didn't really have a robust answer to Stanley's, uh, you know, way of life, which he could have had if he understood why it's important to be the way that he is. That's assuming that his viewpoint was entirely justified, which it's not. But I think he is demoralised by that encounter and he needs, you know, uh, McCann to blow in his mouth to, to rejuvenate him, really, to recreate him. And, you know, because there is, it happens at that point where he says, for I believe that the world... Yeah, and he says it three times, but he can't complete the sentence. He yeah. cannot really say what he believes the world is fundamentally about because he is just a tissue of received ideas. He just spouts them out with, uh, but uh, but having to fight for them in a sense, he is then confronted with the vacuity of them, and he needs that redemptive gesture of. McCann blowing in his mouth to give him back his confidence. He is able to regain it pretty quickly, mainly because he's not remotely a reflective man. Yes. Uh, and that's why he's it. But, you know, he's still a victim of those ideas in the sense that, you know, he feels he has to live them out, but he, do, you know, he, but he has to live them out in a slavish way, uh, to be yep. honest. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. I, th- I think that, that interpretation definitely makes sense. Um, I, you know, he, he obviously is a kind of shallow man, Goldberg, you know, and he takes a joy in, in, in boasting about his status that is quite, you know, evident given his kind of place in the hierarchy. But but yeah, I mean, I think the fact that he keeps nostalgically harking back to this, to his childhood, I mean, again, it, it sounds very unconvincing and rosy, these, these kind of childhood, you know, yarns that he comes out with. But again, there's even in him, you know, a sense that he's not really a deeply satisfied guy and he actually preferred no. what he was prior to becoming this worldly man actually you know so so even yeah. there yeah there is yeah. there, there is something of him 
having been undermined by this transformation actually deeply, even though he has conformed yes. in a successful way in a kind of wor- worldly sense. Um, well, in, in pushing Stanley over into becoming him, I think he recognised that he couldn't quite defend or justify that worldview. So that's why he stumbles over for I believe that the world, he can't, he can't answer that because of all these received ideas. I think another aspect of it is that um, this is something that D.W. Winnicott, the, the famous paediatrician and psychoanalyst, talked about, you know, the antisocial tendency. So yeah. when, when we look at... Uh, Stanley, we see quite an obvious form of the antisocial tendency because he is reclusive, uh, arrogant, uh, you know, um, overly dependent. But one of the the more interesting things that that, uh, Winnicott said is the antisocial tendency could also be inhabited by somebody that is overly conformist. So, so. Goldberg, while he fits in to that society like a hand in a glove in some ways, it is antisocial in the sense that it's authoritarian. This man cannot relate to anybody different in a democratic, egalitarian, Rogerian, whatever way you want to put it that would be constructive. Yeah. Uh, he has to pummel the guy. He has to pummel uh, Stanley into submission. So Goldberg is an autocrat, and this is one of the the less obvious forms of the antisocial tendency. What does that mean in terms of his his psyche? Well, um, one of the things that you could say about somebody like him that's autocratic is that they haven't really developed a substantial moral system. And what that means, I think, in this play is that while he is not like Stanley, there will be an unconscious pool or temptation to be like Stanley, which I think is another reason why they've got to subdue him so much to be themselves, because he is a regressive tendency in themselves. If they had been more mature pro-social personalities, as Winnicott would put it, uh, they would not feel the need to to pummel them into submission, because what they're really doing is also trying to pummel that part of themselves that is... Uh, you know, against be it, you know, working hard, against responsibility, because they haven't outgrown it. They've merely identified with a persona that is very different to it. Yeah, great point. Uh, absolutely. I think, I mean, it's interesting the, the issue of their antisocial um, aspects. You know, I think that that comes across very well in the actual the birthday party scene, you yeah. know, because you know, the more, say, introverted characters obviously we know P.E. hasn't attended and, mm. you know, McCann and Stanley initially, you know, they, they're they a little bit quieter until McCann has a few drinks, but yeah, maybe even the more kind of extrovert characters, you know, mm. who are maybe more into the idea of a party, they all monologue about their mm. childhood, you know, mm. that's all mm. they do, it's like mm. there's no, that which is every bit as antisocial in a sense, mm. it's just opting out of the communication in a way because yeah. it isn't really a connection. It's not anything no. that, so they're not relating to each other. So yeah, um, I think so. It's it's funny how, again, there's this recurrence of this nostalgia that creeps out in them for something lost, yes. you know. We've, we've talked about Maslow in a previous uh, episode and, yeah. the, you know, these characters are not self-actualizing. They're living <laughs> at that very much that survival level. Yeah. Uh, even and emotionally too, yeah. um, and so you could see if adults are living at that level, why there would be why why the childhood would be seen as Edenic in some way, and it's another re- refuge for them. Yeah. But yes, in terms of what we're talking about at the moment, um, even Goldberg will feel that pull to childhood, and I think this is one of the things that Stanley represents for him is that you know, that time of no responsibility and yeah. uh, doing what what you want, really. So because, but you know, Goldberg is not a mature personality, uh, quite the opposite. He, he is simply conformed, just like Stanley does ultimately. But even he has those groans, those inner groans that we see with Stanley at the end. Even he has them in his psyche. And I think, you know, while... While Goldberg exacerbates the conformist side of Stanley, his encounter with Stanley exacerbates those inner groans about, um, you know, being dependent and being, you know, without responsibility. 
Goldberg and McCann's impact on Stanley is yeah. destructive. You know, it's this attempt to subdue him. So mm. the, the next issue I was kind of keen to explore was they, they see themselves on some levels the cure for Stanley. You know, they say, yeah. we've got the answer to you. We can sterilise you, this sort mm. of stuff. But of course, that's not really a healthy cure. You know, it's, it's something no. that's deeply destructive. Um, so what is the real cure, you know, that a Stanley would actually have needed in, in, in these circumstances. Well, I, mean, I think I think we're quite fortunate here that we don't need to speculate too much up to a point because Pinter himself gave at least his answer. And the way I would sum it up would be self-acceptance. So okay. what, what, what Pinter himself said was that if Stanley was able to accept his way of life, this quiet way of life, this reclusive way of life, as suitable for him and that he didn't need to justify it. See, of course, he felt he needed to. He needed to, to, to fight it. He needed to fight that part of him that was against it within himself through Goldberg and McCann. But Pinter says if he could have just accepted that, then Goldberg and McCann would have had to leave. They wouldn't have had the same psychological impact <clears throat> on him. And I think that, that Pinter's essentially right, in my view, about that, that if Stanley had had the courage of his convictions, if he'd had a robust enough self and he could accept that self and not feel that he needed to defend it or be otherwise then he could have saw off Goldberg and McCann. Now, I mean, we're using a lot of ifs here because mm -hmm. I think the play shows or implies that that would have been impossible for <clears throat> for Stanley to have been able to be like that. But, and th this leads me back to what I said about, you know, how devilish it was that Meg and Petey had, you know, certain strains, but they lacked, they were conspicuously lacking in other ways because... You know, the kind of um, upbringing, so to speak, that, that that Stanley would have needed to be able to see off Goldberg and McCann would have involved that he would have had to have received that unconditional positive acceptance growing up. You know, value himself as a person, yeah. but simultaneously he would have had to also been subjected to, you, you know, constructive criticism about his actions, he would have yes, needed yes. those. So, in other words, he he would to have a robust ego. <clears throat> it would have to have been nurtured enough so that that you could see your desires and who you want to be mainly as benign. But also, it would need uh, you know a benign super ego that could also critique your actions morally and correct them. What we see instead is a. Uh, is a very weak ego because, you know, he can't really embrace his desire, Stanley, but he's also got this punitive critic as well. So it, yeah. it's all set up such that he would he has no real ability to fight off Goldberg and McCann. I, yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with that. I think, I mean, it's a kind of, it's an interesting hypothetical to consider, you know, what, how could things have worked out more fortunately for Stanley? But I think you're quite right. I mean, the, the, the circumstances of the play as they're presented, including the, you know, the more oppressive authoritarian society and all these other things added together, don't make the prospects for Stanley's growth look terribly promising. But yeah, I, I mean, certainly my, my, my take on that issue um, as well were that, were that, yeah, I mean, it's, it's very clear that Stanley has this, this weak sense of self, you know, he, he, on the one hand, he has you know, a kind of creative side, obviously, and let, you know, assuming he's being honest, which we can't take to be absolutely true, but he would seem to have been a pianist if, if we take him at face value mm. on that. So there was something, you know, there was something creative and meaningful to him that, that he wanted to do. But of course, yeah, he wanted this quieter life. But um, it does seem like he just, you know, venturing out into the world even enough to pursue this artistic goal um, was too much for him. You know, he, he, he you talked earlier about it, this 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 belief he'd been carved up. You know, if, if we're to read that as that he, he gave a performance and it got, say, some negative reviews, and that was absolutely intolerable for mm. him. And he, and he essentially gave up the ghost on it. You know, that's obviously a sign of somebody who who had talent, but just didn't remotely have that that kind of robust self that could no. cope with with sort of, you know, navigating his way in the world. And and yes, I mean, that would have to, of course, come down to the, the circumstances of his of his earlier years, which we, can, we can't really, you know, we can't really know much about here. But well, again, no, we, we you know, can't. But I think what the... The play suggests is uh, through Meg, Petey, and Goldberg, 
is that there aren't any parental figures that could cultivate growth no. in any Maslow or self-actualizing sense. The reason, as, as I say, is that Meg can certainly be affectionate, but her affection is so uncritical and so smothering that it would damage his autonomy. Yeah. And then when we look at pity, we're looking at a permissive father figure who cares, but in a very withdrawn way and would not subject, you know, Stanley to any, uh, you know, constructive critique, critique of his actions. And then we've got Goldberg, who would, would, who would subject him to critique, but it's in a very punitive way. Yeah. So there, there's no parental figure there in that play, and I think it's meant to represent probably in Pinter's view, society at large, that that it is not going to uh, nurture individuality and in a, in a robust sense of self that can then go on to actualise itself, its unique touch. Yes, it does seem to be, although on the one hand Pinter claimed he was writing plays that were that were concrete in that way, I think it's hard, I mean, you know, you've described his own political views and how they kind of manifest and he does depict a very dark world, you know, and it's not one that seems, and certainly in this play, remotely welcoming for somebody who wants to live a more eccentric lifestyle. Um, it's not, we can't, you know, again, we can't say for sure he was making a broader statement about that issue but he does seem to depict a very very difficult world for somebody who's a little bit eccentric well, think, and a little bit non-conformist well i think you know if we go on that quote the, the pro one of the problems about pinter is that he he want well not a problem but if if we're trying to interpret what he's saying a difficulty is that mm -hmm. he wanted audiences to really engage with his plays more directly and he didn't want to be too definite about what he was believing not all the time anyway did, did he want to be definite and sometimes his comments um, understandably are going to contradict or be in tension with each other so I've got a quote from what he had written to Peter Wood you know for the first performance of the birthday party and he in the note he says we've agreed the hierarchy the establishment the arbiters the socio-religious monsters arrive to effect alteration and censure upon a member of the club who has discard who has discarded responsibility towards himself and others so it's very clear okay. how that these characters are representative of these forces from that quote um, and as we've said, that while these um, arbiters, members of the status quo, the hierarchy, that's Goldberg and McCann, he does complicate it in the fact that, uh, you know, Goldberg is Jewish, so they have been victims very much so. Uh, they're also victims themselves of that society because, you know, if, if they were to start to behave like Stanley, they would be uh, taken off to Monty. So, you know, they're still very much driven by fear. That'll be one of the reasons. You see that more with McCann, how fearful yes. he is of what he has to do, because, you know, the, these people are still very much victims of that society at large, even if they're, uh, to use a, a euphistic term, better integrated. They're still very much, uh, uh, you know, potential victims of that if they stepped out of line in any way. I think that's a good point. Maybe if there is a kind of implied political statement that Pinter is putting across here, not that it's propaganda plays, but if you know part of Stanley's cure, as Pinter might imagine it, could be if he had been able to work out his own values more clearly. Mm. He's he's very defiant of those imposed social values, you know, and that and as you said, responsibility and other things that on some level he doesn't want to do for more infantile reasons, but there's just a broad sense of rejecting society there. But you know, had he maybe been able to have a more critical view on society that involved him maybe maybe more um in a more kind of adult way working out his alternative perspective, you know, what he thinks is right if he thinks what yeah. Goldberg and McCann stand for is wrong maybe then there'd be a little bit more power and autonomy for him you know they'd lose their grip exactly if there were, yeah if there was a coherent set of values which i suppose is what pinter was kind of hoping through his plays you know people maybe reflecting on them you know there would be maybe some kind of political conclusions drawn from them that would lead to more of a kind of alternative set of values about society being kind of fostered yeah exactly i mean what we we see with stanley is someone that like a teenager is able to muster up an uncritical no 
And if you're always saying no to the status quo, you're still too much defined by it. Yeah. So I can't remember who it was that said this, but it's a good point. And they define maturity as maturity is being able to see that your parents are right some of the time. Okay. And yeah. so I think like a mature person, which Stanley isn't, could could you know take what they they agree with from their society and leave the rest and not need to defend it in because Stanley has to defend his um his positions, shall we say, in as uh, violent and in as set of way as Goldberg and McCann uh, do, because you know each side of the debate is is somewhat pulled by the other person. As I said earlier on, I think that Stanley represents part of Goldberg and McCann's psyche that they they want to pummel. To, to remain loyal to that regime. Yeah. And likewise, he has to uncritically, uh, without nuance, fight them because he has his own conformist part, that, that very strict superego that he has. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think so. I think so. Um, so I, another question then leading on from that, Alec, I, I was curious about was that, and we've touched on this, you know, um, you know, is the issue of whether you could you could interpret the birthday parties having an overall kind of moral message, and if so, what it might be. And um, I know we've kind of touched on that again, yeah. just to kind of you know make things complicated. Pinter himself, you know, to to hit you with another quote that would suggest you know he's he's being a little bit evasive here. He says that my position has remained the same. What I write has no obligation to anything other than myself. So he he certainly professes not to be a playwright who offers kind of simple simplistic parables or you know his mm, character is mm. always complex but i think as you alluded to earlier he does seem to be a very moral eth- you know a kind of ethical playwright and um, so what do you think is there a could we identify a single moral message here um, well or is that i mean too simplistic well pinter himself actually on another occasion said that the the message if you want to put it that way of the birthday party was what pt said at the end as impotent as it was don't let them tell you what to do Okay. So I think that was, uh, if we were going to reduce it to a, a key message, is that, you know, don't capitulate. Try and be yourself if you can. Yeah. And I think th- through showing Stanley's failure, he's showing the, the pitfalls there um, that, that make us conform. And, yeah. I, and so indirectly, anyway, I think he was trying to strengthen that resolve and show what might be required by showing the very opposite and how it uh, unfolded. So I think, yeah, in as far as it has a key message, it's about um, resisting the establishment, if you can, not to let them tell you what to do, to have your own autonomy, to respect your own individuality, your own set of values. Pinter himself did that with um, his national service. He did not believe in it, and he stood up to them, uh, which would be a brave thing to do um, because he could have gone to jail. But it did not reflect his own belief system, and he didn't let them tell him what to do. And so I think while he managed that uh, in his situation, Stanley doesn't, and I think that would have been one of the things that fascinated him. One of the things I've always found quite interesting about Pinter is the fact that, you know, you, these plays seem to be so psychologically complex, you know, so, such, yeah. you know, very intriguing. But Pinter always seems to have been sort of evasive on the subject of psychology. You know, at different times I've heard him, you know, be kind of dismissive of the idea that he maybe was influenced by particular psychoanalytic theories in his writing. But he always has plenty to say on politics, you know, like um, yeah. I think it was his Nobel speech that he not use the opportunity to bash the kind of Blair Bush administration you know they're kind of what he saw as warmongering policies yes. you know he was very direct on that issue but less less direct on the issue the, the psychological you know which was interesting but i think um definitely power imbalance and justice oppression these were really really big issues for him that i think yeah. do come up in these plays actually maybe in a more concrete context actually you know rather than the more kind of global you know um power politics kind of kind of um, manifestation well, yes, that he, yeah. he was also well, interested in well, Michael Billington made the interesting point, which I think is true, that in Pinter's plays, um, he shows how domestic 
relationships could be like totalitarian regimes and then how totalitarian regimes could be like domestic relationships. So <laughs> one of his later plays, One for the Road, the interrogator has that almost domestic-like relationship with the person he's torturing. And so I think one of the things is that, yes, while he didn't show it on stage in that global sense, I think he wanted to illustrate that there's this continuity from our so-called everyday life to these more totalitarian societies. He, he felt there was, and you see that in the birthday party as well, because you know, Goldberg and McCann are like a midpoint between the everyday and the totalitarian. Yeah. And so, so for Pinter, there was this direct continuity. Why he did? Why he didn't engage so much with psychology? I don't. In terms of his commentary, uh, there could be a number of reasons for that. It, it does seem that, like, when critics would send him books that gave a Freudian reading and such, that he would be interested to read them, but. But how much he could relate to them, or how much it spoke to him, or or how much he understood it, I don't really know. Mm. Um, obviously, the he had a keen sense of the psychological um, in a very intuitive way. I yes, mean, that, I think that's so, for yeah. sure. But he might not have been interested in theorizing about it. Um, I yeah. don't know why, really. Maybe, maybe he thought that these grand theories, the Freudian and, so, and such, might simplify it. He might see them as like allegorical theories, perhaps. I think that's um, yeah. I think you might be onto something because I, I, I was getting the impression that you know, it's like there's a real kind of, you know, there's a high aesthetic standards that he sets himself, and it was like um, he maybe has a has a, a you know distinct view about how playwriting should be done well and. Whilst on the one hand he has these personal political concerns, you know he obviously really profoundly dislikes the idea of making these too avert or too you described earlier the propaganda of a, approach. You know that there was a there was a quote from him in the introduction to this series of plays here where he says, "Beware of the playwright who puts forward his concern for you to embrace, who leaves you in no doubt of his worthiness, his usefulness, his altruism, who declares that his heart is in the right place." Mm. So it's a bit like he it's maybe like more of an aesthetic preference in a way that it's not that. He he doesn't do politics or obviously psychology, but he just maybe thinks that that's not the, the correct starting point for writing a great play. It needs to be something more, maybe more nuanced and more weaved into real people, really, rather than just the, the theory yeah. as, the, as the launching point for the, the play. Exactly, yeah. I mean, when The Birthday Party was the first play, Pinter play that I ever saw, and it was very memorable for me because the very first time I listened to this dialogue, I found it so surreal. Yes. And and the reason for that was that we're so not used to hearing how people actually talk. And Pinter's plays are amazing in that regard. They're very... Some, I mean, they're stylized, of course they are, but they are very similar to everyday conversation in some ways. And, and I think that that fidelity to what he thought was real or naturalistic um, was a big part of his aesthetic. I know that he said, you know, what I'm doing, you know, my plays are not, uh, you know, realism, but they're realistic. So they were stylized, but there was still a great fidelity to how people come across in everyday life, particularly in terms of dialogue and, and such. So perhaps he thought that if he, if he, entered a play from some definite theoretical position, then he might actually miss the complexities of the situation. So in, in a way, he's a little bit like um, that philosopher Wittgenstein that believed that you should attend to particularities and to situations and respect the differences of situations and that theory, while it can be useful is in some way a simplification and it can do violence to to understanding the unique aspects of a situation. So he does almost seem like Wittgenstein in that way. Um, yeah, I, I think that's that's really good points there about his, yeah, the, the natural naturalistic style, actually, because, yeah, I, I would say I had the same experience as yourself. You know, I remember watching The Birthday Party, probably with you, actually, a very long time ago, Alec, um, where, yeah, it seems so strange, this the way these characters talk, and it seems so odd and out there, 
purely because it's not what you're used to seeing in, no. in, in film or even in plays. But I think, you know, Pinter's, you know, he had this really, this this philosophy in a way about dialogue, which was that we use it to, to hide rather than reveal ourselves, you know. Mm. So I guess he couldn't have characters making simplistic political statements, you know, because he wanted it to be real you know it's that's not what people do certainly in the day-to-day realm you know in terms of uh, maybe when the guard is down you know if, if, if we imagine a camera in a, in a domestic situation where you know people are just being themselves in a way um it, it wouldn't be polished you know it wouldn't be no um, it wouldn't sound you know well crafted it would be quite the opposite you know the pauses and the and the unspoken moments of uh, hostility would be would be there as well <laughs> well yes um, yeah it, it would be very difficult and 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 i think another part of his aesthetic was this determination to um to not provide commentary on actions or not to make it easy for the audience just to understand what's going on because it was his view that in everyday life we meet people uh we have to try and understand them based on what they're telling us and what they're telling us isn't always true or it's slanted in some way so in in some way you know he's one of the first playwrights i think to to really expose the impoverishment of our understanding in, in in everyday life and how much we've got to make sense of our encounters, which can be quite disturbing in some way because we have to go on just what we're presented with. And we know, if we're being honest with ourselves um, and not Pollyannish about it, is that people distort uh, yes. willfully and unconsciously. And so in his plays, he is subjecting us to that uh, with these characters because... Yeah, I mean, if, if it had been an Ibsen play, um, you know, 50, 60, 70 years beforehand, mm-hmm. Goldberg and McCann might have been presented in a certain way through other characters talking about them, you know, to give us a perspective on them. And then yeah. we might get a lot of backstory so that we can understand them. Yep. Whereas in Pinter, they just arrive, just like how people do in real life, just as how clients do. Though, thankfully, it's not as sinister. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. As, yep. as that. But, but, you know, I feel that as a therapist, that when you, you first meet a client, that um, we're meeting for that first time and, you know, we don't know anything about each other and we've got to try and make sense of what's going on. Obviously, because um, it's the therapeutic situation and not a pinter play that we're, we're being op- much more open and kinder to each other. But still there is that, you know, existential fact that, you know, we encounter people, we've got to try and make sense of them based on what we're given and life doesn't make it neat and easy for us. And he wanted to show that in his plays. Yeah. Whereas if he, if, he, if he was doing a more political kind, directly political play or aligning himself with some theory, he would maybe smooth out that aspect of life. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I guess that was his, you know, really pioneering contribution there really was, was recognising the fact that, yeah, drama provides us with these little convenient backstories and quick ways into understanding characters, you know, which can be useful. But yeah. at the same time, it doesn't really match, as you as you were just describing, it doesn't match what happens in life when we meet new people and, they, no. you know, maybe they present a persona it's, that's a little bit deceptive or, you know, we're just, it takes us time to really get our heads around people. So, yeah, the, the first experience of a Pinter play is quite a memorable one for that reason because it does raise so many questions. You know, you're not given something that's, that's that's all kind of neat and, and quick and easy to just immediately get to the to the root of. You know, it's something much kind of more raw and, and, and real than that, I think. Exactly. I think raw is a good word for it, that it is very raw. And I think it's that rawness that also... I mean, I never thought I'd be quoting Dawson's Creek here, but, but, Pinter, <laughs> but, but Pinter was actually referred to in Dawson's Creek, okay. um, believe it or not, as right, the king okay. of subtext, which is quite cheesy, but mm-hmm. you could see why it's true, because there is this very dense layer of sub- subtext precisely because he is not going to give us backstory or easy yes. ways in to understand. I mean, that's one of the things I love about his plays because, um, you know, it, it really works those interpretive muscles. Um, yeah, and of course, that's exactly. what we're doing in real life too. 
Exactly right. Yeah, that's it. They're not. Yeah, they're they're not. They're the opposite of kind of you know, kind of mind raw escapism. Pinter plays. I mean, they're certainly not that. <laughs> well, I won't make I mean, a judgment about Dawson's Creek. I'm not. I'm not good. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing is, like, um, you know that that so called double lap, which were probably not as funny as Goldberg and McCann, little and large, back in the eighties. <laughs> yes. Okay. That, yes. Um, what was it, Eddie Large? Was that his name? I think Sid but Little and Eddie Large. I yeah, think. Eddie yeah, Large. Yeah. He used to say that he loved sitting watching American daytime TV because he could polish his golf clubs and still follow <laughs> the story. <laughs> so, but you can't. You wouldn't be able to do that with a pinter play, to be honest. No, no, you you, you couldn't. No, <laughs> you know, I, I there think, won't I think... be. You're probably not going to get. Angela Lansbury giving you an update every five minutes of what the plot is <laughs> and such, and so. No. You know, to me, this is what makes it more profound drama, more engaging drama, but not something that um, people find easy. I mean, I, I know that even when I taught, or at least, you know, taught would be the right word, when I was at a tutorial, taking mm-hmm. a tutorial on the dumb waiter, um, that, yeah, students seem to particularly struggle with Pinter yeah. because uh, how oblique the dialogue is and how much it uh, forces you to really read between the lines. Yeah, that's true. I think that's it. I mean, I think he's, he is a great playwright to study, actually, at university for that reason. But, but, but I mean, certainly, that you know, my own first reaction to him would be similar to the to the students that you were teaching. You know, it, it was it was quite puzzling. You know, it's difficult to know what to yeah. make of it. And yeah, I mean, it is you. But I mean, I think it's I think as you said, what what's great about it is that as you, you know, if you if you're somebody who explores psychological issues and his interest in observing people and trying to make sense of them you know as, as you as you kind of keep doing that then pinter plays start to say more and more and more to you you know and they become can become a really rich source of insight actually well, into, yes, into yeah. people you know well i think we're kind of at the the, the end of our, our our time slot for this alex so yeah thank yeah. you and and yeah just to get dawson's creek and pinter into the same podcast i think that's that's certainly well i mean that's an achievement we could also <laughs> spoke about seinfeld and pinter because there of was a homage to Pinter's play Betrayal in a Seinfeld episode too. So yes, a, of course. I mean, it, it shows yeah. how his cultural importance that he's appeared in, in this rather disparate media. Indeed, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, well, thank you. Okay. Okay. Cheers. Okay, good night then.